What's up, Mentors Collective? If you're like me and you're running a business, you'll realize at some point that leadership is one of the most important skills that you're going to have to learn, and nobody teaches you how to be a good leader. And one of the foundations in leadership, one of the key expectations of you as a, as a leader of your company is to make decisions and to make good ones. And this is something that I've never learned before. In fact, I don't know anyone who's ever taught this before. So I'm very humbled and honored, and I hope you enjoy the guest that I brought for you today. Jack P. Flaherty is the author and founder of The Decision Switch. He helps others learn how to make productive decisions in a more complex world. He was an investment banker and a big four consultant, and he advises startups all over the country on how to make important decisions. Jack, welcome to the show. I'm super excited to jam with you today on decision making. Well, thank you. Uh, I can't tell you how passionate I am about the topic, and particularly for your audience. I, I think it's, it's, it's a perfect place, particularly considering the, the increasing complexity and speed of life and business, that we have a good framework to consistently make the right choices to give us the outcomes that we deserve. Right. And as a business owner, there's so much on the line. If you make the wrong decision, not just money, but people, you can burn bridges, you can ruin relationships, you can get canceled. Uh, so I just want to emphasize the importance of decision-making. A lot of people might brush it under the rug, but when it comes to running an organization, being a leader, this is really something that people need to pay attention to. And I'm excited uh, for you to be here and teach me a little bit about decision-making so I can be a better leader. Uh, so Jack, let's just start here. Why is decision-making important? Why should people care about getting better at making decisions? Because too often we learn as children are in school to trust just your emotions or your, your gut reflexes on a decision. And when you take a step back and you, you can look at whether it's large scale system implementations or changes or even launching a business, you need to realize it's a process. You need to be able to accumulate the information and prioritize you know, what's valuable and you know, what you need to act upon today. You know, who are those that you need to work with and making sure you're you know, involving them in those processes so, so you make more well-rounded conclusions. And there's always the psychological aspects, whether it be biases or, or empathy, are just critical aspects of, of, of your legacy and who you are as a leader and how your success is shaped. And most importantly, have a process for improving that, learning where you had success or maybe where you had a failure and how to adopt and improve your process. So again, we all grow and gain as leaders to achieve greater success and fulfillment in life. Now, Jack, you've mentioned empathy a couple of times in our conversations up until now. When I hear decision-making as a business owner, my head immediately goes to when to make the hard decisions, what are those hard decisions going to be? Is, is that the fundamentals of what you teach? What are those hard decisions and how is empathy related to it? Sure, I mean, the hard decisions, and actually the framework works from anything from small all the way up through complex decisions. But when we look at a business and we look at the choices we need to make, think about empathy just in the outset of who am I trying to sell to? And if I was put myself in their shoes, what am I looking for? Because so often we talk about ourselves and what we can do, transfer that and think about those individuals that you're working with or that you want to hire. But then going down the line, the decisions that we make often have negative implications. And so yeah. your legacy and your ability to maintain those positive relationships, even when you need to make the hard decision is so important because if you can bridge that and help them, it actually fosters 
often stronger bridges and relationships because you told them the hard truth and you were honest, but you didn't leave them hanging. You gave them a path forward as well, whether as an employee helping them to land their new position, or if you're a supplier and you don't have sufficient resources to meet the needs of a manufacturer, what can you do to help them through their challenges? Because then you get looked at as a, as a trusted resource. And some of them come to, even though you may not always have the right answer. So that's how empathy is involved, being transparent with them, leveling with your employees that you might have to give a difficult answer to. Now, just playing devil's advocate here, as leaders of a company, and maybe it's a publicly traded company and your responsibility is to your shareholders. Sure. At, where does empathy play a role there? Isn't your responsibility to the bottom line and to the financial success of the business? Should you detach the, the personal side of the empathy from the bottom line? How would you we suggest handling something like that? I think they go, they go hand in hand. It's easy to separate them and just be bottom line focused. And I talk about in the book that there are leaders that are so bottom line focused that it's always about cutting costs and raising you know, the profit margins. However, at some point in time, and we've seen the news time and time again, where there's a response, a backlash, because an executive had to make a decision, but then didn't really you know, support those that they negatively impacted. And so it did have a negative financial impact on them because now, you know, if you think about you know, the ESG movement or the environmental, social, and governance. Now organizations are being evaluated on that. And particularly in the stock world, there are firms that are only trading in stocks that can demonstrate they're doing the right thing. So that's the macro aspect. But when you think about the employees, I mean, I've worked for numerous, you know, consulting and professional services firms. Some of your best buyers are folks that you had to let go. And if you do it in the right way and help them and coach them and they land a great position, guess what? You just find yourself a tremendous new customer that's now going to be loyal to you because in a challenging situation, you still did the right thing and you help them. And that's where I, I, I just think the world needs to really start focusing on not just what our weekly, quarterly, and annual results are, but what type of, what type of legacy, what type of culture are we building because that really is, is, is the roots of your organization to grow. You want people to come to you. You don't want to alienate them by frustrating them or making them angry. Uh, we referenced a couple of times laying somebody off. That's a, an obvious problem that all of our minds go to. During hard times, sometimes you have to make hard decisions and make cuts sure. uh, where the company can afford to. Is a part of the framework the proper way to do that, the proper way to address it uh, leading up to the situation, the proper way to deliver that news? Uh, do you have a framework for doing that? Because I feel like the audience uh, probably relates to that problem a lot, including myself. You have sure. to fire somebody either because they're not performing or you have to make mandatory cuts. What is the best way to go about it to salvage that relationship to protect your company? There is a structure. It's not pertaining just to laying someone off. And this could be as simple as, and I'll just tangentially cross over back into COVID days, where you had suppliers, because I did a lot of work in healthcare, you had suppliers that ran out of just your simple materials, whether it be gloves or whatnot. And they had to tell a hospital or a healthcare provider, they don't have the supplies they need to provide healthcare. So how do you couch that and help them in whether anticipating deliveries or alternate vendors? But coming back to the whole point of laying off someone, by 
putting yourself in their shoes and providing them, A, the coaching that they might need on their personal development about maybe why you had to lay them off or because of, you know, macroeconomic reasons that, you know, we need to, you know, we need to pull back on costs because if, if, if we only, if we lay off a few people, you know, we can keep the company afloat and that way we can still employ a larger amount of people. But in the process, looking at it and then making suggestions about alternate career paths that they may have, or even alternate positions they may, they may have within the organization that they can then thrive in. Because often we get so focused on our career, our financial success, that even we as employees, so now speaking on the person who might be being laid off, forget about, to me, what's most important about life, our family, our friends, why we're here on earth. And so if you know, somebody has been challenged because they can't travel as much for work and that's why you need to let them go, part of that is also redirecting them and making sure that part of what I call your North Star, the reason for why you're doing things, more crystal clear. And I, multiple occasions I've had to let people go, but we, also, we, we did it almost collaboratively because one, one of the greatest phrases that I think I've ever you know, said to an employee was, the cost of a divorce is going to be far more than you changing a job. And these individuals called me back years later and thanked me just because I did the right thing. And so, yes, it was a hardship for a short amount of time, but it allowed them to get back on track with their life about what's most important to them. And it's not always about money or that business. That's all really good points. And an interesting uh, disparity against like kind of what I read in the past about just cutting ties, not saying anything extra because it's ammunition for them to come back and either sue you or demand something. Uh, but I, you know, I, I agree with you. If someone were to come to me and let me go and they approached it the way that you just, just mentioned with transparency, they offered to write me a letter of recommendation. They told me the reasons maybe that I was being let go. And I don't know if that was part of your framework. That might be even more risky. Uh, is that true? Would, would you offer the reason for why that person was being let go? I smile because I've worked in the world of risk management for at least 20 yeah. of those years. So you're the and perfect so, person yeah. to ask. <laughs> so yes, we have to be mindful of our words. And so you don't want to undermine your own credibility or that of the, your organization. I mean, that, you know, that is the nature of your business. But again, by talking about them and their needs and how they can then progress to the next step, you're not taking any fault. You're not undermining your own credibility. And when you do provide them coaching, if you do so in the same type of way I would do to any of my teams and, and just share with them about maybe work ethic or you know, some of the specifics about their job, about this would make you so much more valuable. Or have you ever thought about a career in sales because I see you're so good with people? Again, you're not doing anything that from a legal perspective is going to undermine your organization or cause a lawsuit against you, what you're doing is you're really highlighting what their strengths are. And those are the marketable skills that they can use to find another job. And that's why that's important. That, that letter recommendation, again, you're highlighting their strengths. Yes. Because yes, we do live in a heavily litigious world. And so yes. we do need to protect ourselves. And so by talking about their strengths, their opportunities, you're doing nothing to put yourself at risk. 
You mentioned potentially replacing that person somewhere else in your organization where they might be better suited. Now, this is a problem that I've faced in my company a few times. We had somebody who was awesome, who was a cultural fit, who was hardworking, who we didn't want to let go. Sure. And we knew that that person would be a better fit in a different department of our company. But we've never made the decision to have that conversation with them and replace them, typically in a role that would make them less money. Because, again, opening ourselves up to liability, if we have that conversation, it's, it, it becomes another risk factor. Is this a practice that you, that you use in your consulting? And is there a right way to go about it? When you bring in the compensation portion of it, hmm. it adds so many layers of complexity. Right. And so that is something that I would recommend for your entrepreneurs or your executive leadership teams to have a conversation. Because yes, if you're going to reduce somebody's salary by say 50%, as much as you want to keep them, putting yourself in that position of having to ask them to take a pay cut to take another position while telling them it's because they're really good at customer service, then I'm going to put you in our new customer service group. Mm -hmm. It does have the potential of, of creating a riff. And that's where you do have to take a step back and saying, as much as I love this person, as much as they're part of the culture and I, I, I treat them like a brother or sister or whomever, it's just not worth the risk because it is going to be a hit on their own confidence to say yeah. that you're only worth half the money that we used to pay you. So yes, I, I do believe if those factors are at play, repurposing may not be the best use or the best outcome in those situations. But that's where, again, collaborating with others and talking about how useful that person is, maybe you don't cut their salary quite as much. Right. And that's you know, why collaborating with others and getting others' opinions helps round and make a better decision. That makes a lot of sense, especially with the salary cuts. I expect if we were to replace them but keep their salary the same, we'd face much less backlash and it would be much better received. Uh, thank you, Jack. Uh, so the the firing model or and some you having to make that hard decision to cut somebody is the obvious problem that business owners and founders face. Uh, what are some other situations that we might find ourselves in where decision making becomes? Sure. Typically, it's where there's large changes, whether it be, you know, merger and acquisition, where you need to align two different organizations that could have different corporate cultures or system implementation. This is where it's important, where the preface be even before the seven principles is to look at roles and making sure that you have the right persons with the right experience, knowledge, and the authority to make critical decisions, because those are the ones that are going to set the tone for the rest of the culture. And if they embrace a really open, objective type of decision-making process, where they allow others to contribute towards ideas, even though they are responsible for making the final conclusion. That's the way that you steer those alignments to achieve success. As I've had clients where, say, a system implementation went more than five, six years. And the reason being was the critical individuals that were at the head delegated the responsibilities. And therefore, you had folks who weren't really clear on what the objectives of that change were, making critical decisions. And so, in a sense, it's like trying to shoot a rifle with, with, without a scope or even looking at the direction. 
So they're making critical decisions, but shooting all over the place, you're less likely to achieve a successful outcome. Right. And so again, going back to the knowledge and authority, if you make that crystal clear in a very simple phrase, it allows whoever's making a subsequent decision to make one that aligns with the goals of your project, your change, whatever your organization is looking to achieve. Sure. And I'll try to keep it brief because obviously you Perfect. understand these are very complex um, yes. processes. So looking at the system implementation, for instance, as I say in, in, in the second principles, to have your North Star. So what are you looking to achieve? And normally with a system implementation, you're looking to optimize, you're looking to get more efficient. However, it's in human nature to not want change. So the folks that are at the bottom of the ladder with their fingers on the keyboard are not going to want to change how they do their job right. or even worse, potentially be at risk. And so this is why being very thoughtful, having a very crystal clear objective, making sure you communicate that to any of the critical stakeholders. And so when you look at whether it be a bias, so you have an organization executive that they want to make sure they, they, they maintain the size of their fiefdom. We need to have a hard conversation with them and saying it's the organization's best interest as well as yours. Maybe there's an equity plan or something of the sorts that if we're more efficient, we're more profitable, we're going to grow quicker. So yes, for the short term, your fiefdom may get smaller, but the whole idea is to make the organization bigger and more efficient. And then you go down the lines of, you know, the psychological aspects. And we, obviously we talked about empathy. If you're going to make changes to, to say it's a department or how a process is performed, communicate that in a meaningful way where you really open yourself up about what I'm looking to achieve or what we are looking to achieve and why this is a critical necessary decision to make maybe a configuration or a new system change. And that way, A, they understand you get their buy-in, which is usually the biggest reason why adoptions fail is you don't get buy-in on what that goal is. And again, from the top down to the bottom, if everybody's laser focused on what that North Star is, what that goal is, they will all drive towards it. And yes, there will be probably some negative fallout because someone's job will change or you may have to let some folks go. And again, going back to the whole empathy part, putting yourself in their shoes. As I spoke to the chief expert of, of at, at SAP two and a half weeks ago, who's a psychologist. Why a psychologist? Because these systems are an extension of humans. And so when they're designed in a manner that optimizes my performance, I can do my job better. I can provide more value to the organization. And again, so going through that methodical approach allows your organization to understand and move forward confidently because if you close the velvet drapes on this, it often instills fear and anxiety and your culture can become almost toxic because no one knows what tomorrow is going to bring. So I might start looking for another job or I'm going to give less effort to the organization. And that's why it's so important to have a very crystal clear focus, have the right individuals with the authority that others will follow that will lead you to a successful outcome in hopefully a short amount of time, as well as keep your budgets lower. Because if you've ever been through assistant implementation, chances are you've gone through a change order because you had to make some correction because somebody had made the wrong choice. 
and you had to go back and erase and start again. I'll, I'll jump in because I've got a great Please. story. I'll keep it short. Well, I'd love to hear it. Anyone remembers when we had the hurricane and earthquake at the same day here in Southern California? I actually was fortunate to have a couple of friends of mine who are writers. It was during the writer's strike. And so we were having a very involved conversation about what were the drivers of it. And for someone who works a lot in technology, the one thing I never heard was AI. Hmm. And so I finally, I, I brought up the whole topic. I said, what about displacement or this whole impact of what it's going to do to writers? My one friend pounded down the tape and said, Jack, we're fighting for more writers in the writer's room, not less. And I just... Who's a good friend, paused and said, you can't deny change is coming. Mm-hmm. You can either embrace it and treat it as an opportunity to improve your skills, which improves your market value. Yeah. And for them, the phrase that I gave them is you can turn from being a servant, for better words, to the studios, to a service provider. Because yes, you can get leaner but also you can be able to affect and influence so much more content and put your brand on it. And that way your ability to churn out more content and value for the studios goes up. So in theory, you should get compensated better because you now have new skills that as we all know are marketable in today's economy and will only become more marketable. So going back to your scenario, The one coaching point I probably would have given you is that instead of being fearful of change, we're going to help lift your resumes up because whether you stay with us for life or you go somewhere else, you're going to be able to put on your resume that you are an expert in using AI to generate content and thereby leaning down the process, shortening down timeframes and produce probably better content. Sure. For the empathy part, I'll quickly segue. You, I, I actually bleed empathy. It's probably my greatest strength, but my greatest weakness. Because I do feel for others almost as though I'm being cut myself. But there is a mindset, you can say, where you can look at it in a greedy way. So for those that don't really have it built into them, I can tell you from the last consulting company that I started, over 40% of my business came from people that I delivered bad news because often a lot of my work was writing reports, doing board presentations, basically telling organizations what their faults were. But I took the approach of always framing it with the macro and saying they may not have had the funding or the technology, the resources to address those issues. And so thereby I maintained that bridge. And so when I left the big four and started my own firm, I received referrals. I had folks reaching out to me directly because they'd asked me for years, Jack, how do I fix this? And so when we think about decision-making, you have to look at it again as a process. It starts with triage first, which means make sure you have all the information available. And do you have all the information available? And then the biggest piece of this is prioritization because internet, Facebook, real-time communication platforms, We're fed information, ask decisions at a ridiculous rate these days. And so it necessitates filtering and prioritizing what's most critical and has to be done. And then we talk about the North Star. It's the whole idea of in a very simple phrase, because I chuckle when I see organizations with these massive 
mission statements that are overly complex. You need to distill it down to a very succinct phrase that everybody can align with. Then we talk about collaborate with others. Going alone is a surefire way to trip over yourself. Because I can't tell you how many times I've been in a board meeting where somebody presents a great idea, but they surprise their audience. And when they did so, the knee-jerk reaction, anytime you're put on the spot in front of your peers to make a big decision, even if it's a good one, is, is to pull back. You know, we're, we're here to self-protect. Right. And then we talk about, you know, biases. We all have them. It's something that, you know, our, our ancestors developed as a way to quick response. And so this goes to culture, making sure we ask the good objective questions to distill those, to dissuade those, so we can get really clear on what we're trying to achieve. And, you know, you know taking it a you know, step further is then we should have a champion. If we don't have the power, many of your audience may not be in a power position to recruit an executive that believes in it, that has buy-in, that can help push you through barriers, critically important. And then I'll go to the last piece was the whole point of self-improvement. So depending on how diligent you are about, you know, running down your notes about why you had a success or maybe why you had a failure, these are the opportunities where you become more self-aware. Because if we choose to ignore those learn lessons learned, the old adage about, you know, the definition of insanity, it's doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. And I'm not guaranteeing that every decision will go as you plan. That's why the last phrase in my book is called the gift. Give yourself the gift of knowing that you took the right steps, got the right information, made the right path. And even though you didn't get the results that you wanted, you, know, you still did the right approach to get there. Because as we all know, surprises happen. We can't avoid them, but we also cannot dwell on them. Sure, it, it, it varies widely. I mean, from an air traffic controller who needs to make a split second decision or else two planes might hit. Right. So in that scenario, it's got to be quick. And as we look at whether it be, you know, chat GBT or AI or automation, timeliness is of the essence. If you're not looking at the horizon and seeing what changes are happening, they're going to overtake you. I mean, look at the, 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 the Uber yellow, you know, New York City yellow cab scenario. Even after Uber had launched, they still were reluctant to take on a geo-locating technology platform mm -hmm. until they were basically forced to do so. And so in that instance, yes, you need to be consuming, but also going back to collaborating, you probably need to listen to your entire organization because a lot of executives are probably even a bit older than you and I. And so they may, they may not be familiar with the, the ways and the trends that are happening. And so listening to others allows us to make quicker decisions because I'm not learning of a decision because I failed to act. One of my employees brought me a brilliant idea. We triaged, we collaborated, we found our partners, and we executed on it. So yes, the whole point of the framework is to make decisions faster and more confidently. And because analysis paralysis kills companies, period. And so many companies right now and so many executives that I, I speak with are just fearful about what decision to, to, to make. And I'll bet my entire life savings that the company that's you know quick in, in making good decisions that takes three steps forward and occasionally takes one step back is going to be far, far more ahead in today's economy than a company that's frozen. And they can't figure out what to do. 
So the time frame, going back to your original question, can range, but we don't have the liberty to sit on it for days, for months, right. for weeks. And I, 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 it, it goes back to, again, principle one, triage first. Recognize the urgency in which you need to make a decision and then figure out what you need to do to get there. And that'll tell you how long you have to take. Because right now, if you're not adopting technology, you will be left probably by the wayside. Purposely, I'm not a writer. <laughs> I wasn't a good writer even in school. But fortunately, throughout the years of consulting, apparently I got a little better in life. But when I did do research into this, because I realized it was something that I wasn't good at. And so, I mean, I, I voraciously consume a lot of, you know, personal empowerment books. But when I looked at this from the leading thinkers around, you know, decision-making, it was dense. So I purposely wrote the book in a manner that feels like a conversation that you and I are talking together because one of the reasons why I wrote this book is exactly your platform. We are losing the ability to connect with individuals and gain mentors. And so the book acts almost as though it is a mentor because I tell you my faults. I tell you my strengths. I share intimate personal stories that are built around what are often dense and complex topics. And I break them down and I give steps about what to do or how to you know, evaluate a particular situation. So I tried to write it as best to be informative, but also entertaining. Because most often when somebody reads the book and they approach me, they're like, you've got to tell me that story about the two heavyweight boxers or whatever story that they, that, they, that they read that resonated with them. And I did enough variety with the stories that should be you know, appreciable to all, your entire audience. So it did, because it doesn't focus on one particular industry or one particular vertical, because I wanted stories that are going to tack on to different personalities and different levels within organizations. And that's what makes it attractive. I'm going to go to a lesser known one because from public perception, I, I, I do believe there's two veils. What happens behind closed doors and what happens in front of closed doors? Yes. A gentleman by the name of Barry Wolfman uh, was CEO of a, a health system. And he was fabulous about bringing an idea that to the, the boardroom, the executive room, and then asking others for their input. And the reason why this was such an important aspect is one, it created a much more well-rounded conclusion because you had different vantage points, whether it be from marketing or nursing or operations, whatever that is, about how it's going to negatively impact them or the opportunity would provide. But the second part of that was everyone left the room as a follower and an advocate. They were all going to push this decision. I have some very public ones as well, but they were previous clients. So I have to keep a, a veil of confidence uh, for some of you know, my more risk management audit clients. But I, I think it's so important that we take an inquiry-based approach to presenting ideas like Barry did. And the reason why is that you come to a more well-rounded conclusion, but you gain others to follow. And when yes. you get people to follow you, is what makes you the most powerful leader imaginable. Absolutely. I'm active on LinkedIn, of course, uh, Instagram, and I'm going to be launching TikTok because my folks that come from large corporate America are telling me that 
that is actually what's driving waves. Uh, so it's the decision switch as well. So you can find me Jack P. Flaherty or the decision switch. And I'm sure as part of the, uh, the credits, Jay will provide you those, <laughs> those as well. Thank you for having me. Have a great day.